Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey there, it's Jody Katz, your host for Where Brains Meet Beauty. This podcast series is my side hustle. I do have a day job. I am the founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. We're the omni-channel branding agency hyper-focused on the beauty and wellness industries. Today's episode is a real treat. It's with Matthew Stillman. He's the founder of Primal Derma. I'm sure you've never heard of him and you've never heard of his brand, but this conversation is really worth listening to. If you missed last week's episode, please tune into that as well. It's with Amanda Baldwin. She's the president of Supergroup. Enjoy the shows. Welcome back, everybody. I am happy to say that today I'm sitting with Matthew Stillman, founder of Primal Dermal. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you so much, Jody. Good to see you again. So I want to let everybody know how we know each other, and I think this is a lesson to all new brands out there. Um, you reached out to us. Indeed, I did. You are doing your own PR. I was doing my very own PR. It's true. I, I've, I saw you guys mentioned in... Uh, Beauty Independent, and then I had never heard of you guys, and I listened to a few of the episodes and saw what your ethos was, and I thought, oh, this sort of makes sense. I could, I should reach out to them, and I did. Yeah, and then um, Alini, our producer, spoke with you and thought you were interesting and passed the information along to me, so um, this works, right? The process works? It it worked this time. (laughs) Well, um, how often are you doing this sort of PR for yourself? Well, I'm doing PR for myself all the time. I can't say that... uh, podcasts have been incredibly fruitful yet, but they definitely reach out to them, and you're, I guess you're the second or third podcast that uh, I've done to talk about Primal Derma, which is I'm really delighted about, but we're still a young brand, so it's not like I'm blowing up the spot everywhere, like, oh my god, there's an unstoppable PR team, because I'm the PR team. <laughs> and um, are these other podcasts, are they face-to-face like this one, or are you doing it over the phone? They've all been over the phone. This is my first face-to-face podcast. Okay, so you'll let me know at the end how you like it. I like it. For me, I preferred the notion of face-to-face because it just it feels more personal. Yeah, we've done phone ones. But um, there's just this sort of like, I don't know what your face looks like as you're speaking. That's you exactly don't know what right. my face looks like, and it really changes the dynamic of the conversation. Absolutely. I also, when we met to talk about Primal Derma, and just for you to tell me a bit about what you guys are doing at Base Beauty, I just enjoyed our interaction just as people. So I felt that having that opportunity to have that uh, simpatico in person would be all the better. Well, I'm glad that you're here, and when I look at our roster of um, prior podcasts that we've recorded, you're in really good company, you know, a lot of really interesting people. I, I enjoyed listening and seeing that I got accepted. I was like, really? I'm among these people who are much uh, more accomplished than I, so. Well, they're far, maybe they're farther along. Yeah, but still more accomplished, so. Um, but let's talk first about these beads. You're wearing giant beads. I okay, mean, yeah. I mean, maybe they're like two inches wide, so yeah. tell me about your beads. Uh, these beads were made by the Kikiu people in Kenya, Tanzania. And for at least a thousand years, they've been protecting Jews that were being chased in that part of the world, taking them into their protection. So I wear them as a reminder that I come from a people that are worth protecting and may have been valued by some people somewhere in the past. Um, So that's why I'm trying to call on all the ancestors and remember that I'm among some people like that. Um, and you tell us the story for the first night of Hanukkah, which is will be that tonight. is true. That tonight is the first night of Hanukkah. How did you find the story? Uh, I am fond of um, 
a fine jewelry. I also have some some bracelets here, which you might see as well, which are pretty substantial. And I have a friend of mine who is a... Uh, oh, my God, they're so heavy. Yeah, it's like one, weightlifting. Yeah, these ones are uh, solid brass, and this one's solid copper. And you go around on the subway wearing those? Yeah, I just came... Yeah, I wear these around. So it's like wearing... Um, you know how people exercise with the ankle weights on? That's what you're doing with your arms. It is like that, except this is a 300-year-old uh, piece of metal that was made by the Tuareg people. But with this particular set of beads... A, an acquaintance of mine runs an African trading store, and he sort of knows a bit of my taste and showed me these beads. I thought they were beautiful and said, all I know, he said to me, all I know about them is they're made by the Kikuyu people. And I thought, I never heard of them. So I went and started to do some research into who they were and where they lived, and he told me that these, these particular beads are probably about 100 years old. They're not, like, ancient, but they're old. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at the Kikiyu people, and in researching them, I saw that there was connection. I thought, wow, I feel more drawn to them now. And they were just beautiful but expensive, and now they were beautiful and expensive and part of my ancestry. Right. And so I thought, that's, um, those might be worth gathering in, and so I did. And what are they made out of? They're made out of copal amber. Which can I is, touch? Of course, you can hold them. I mean, they're, these oh, they're heavy, too. Oh, my God. They're big. This is crazy. Yeah. Amazing. So they're vintage, or 100 years old. Yeah, vintage. Uh-huh. I mean, I call them vintage. I wouldn't call that antique, really. I mean, when they could be 75 years, we right. don't know exactly, but they're, right. not, they're not 500 or 1,000 or something like that. So. And do you wear them daily? No, I wouldn't say I wear them daily, but I do wear them. Mm-hmm. I do wear them. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, um, let's talk about the past before we talk about the present, because... Um, I like the sneak attack that we'll do, which is you'll tell us about your career journey prior to your current brand because mm. it's very different than what it, you're doing now. It is, so, but um, related. So tell us about it. Well, I once upon a time was an executive at Food Network, and I did that for a number of years. I developed shows like Iron Chef and Good Eats, which were big successes for the network, and in many ways the network is still sort of running on the fumes of the success of those shows. I'm a huge Alton Brown fan. I know. I found Alton Brown um, sort of out of nowhere and sort of made that show work. I co-wrote the first four seasons. Oh, that's so cool. Maybe five with Alton, something like that. So the idiosyncratic nature of it, it, that's part of you as well. Well, I mean, Alton was uh, truly brilliant, and the show was a sort of, you know, birthed out of his head was very much sort of like this amazing Incarnation, but it didn't sort of have its uh, full sort of quirk. And what we and I developed that together when in those first couple of years. Yeah. It's a great. It's, I love everything about. Yeah. Yeah, it's this great. Whole thing. It's yeah. great. Yeah. So I have that particular part of my background, and then from not directly from there, but other things sort of wound. I found my way to other parts of television. And then I also made a feature-length documentary film about the origins of poverty and why it persists in a world where there's so much wealth. And that, why does it? Uh, very short. I mean, you can watch the film. <laughs> we can watch it on YouTube if you want. It's called The End of Poverty with a question mark. But in short, the core resources which everyone had natural access to before there were corporations and big mass governments keep people from having access to those. And if you don't have access to water or land, just to pick two of many sort of these core resources, no matter what you do to try to get rid of poverty, the machine will continue to pump out poverty. And that's a heartbreak. But you know, the film did, for a feature-length documentary film about poverty, uh, it's a totally hilarious film. It's not funny. <laughs> um, 
it won an award at the Cannes Film Festival, and I spoke at the UN four times about the film, and then toured with the film for a, a while as well. And I've also been interested in ancestral health issues for a long time, and that's been. And when you sort of combine those two, you can sort of see the relationship between old ways of being in community and connection to to land and place and relationships. You can see food and history and with the sort of ancestral health movements things, you can say, how did we used to do things? And so there is like this line backwards, which some ways might draw you forward. And even with the beads that I'm wearing, there might be a little bit of an echo that there's a history that informs us and how we might remember our place today. And that definitely adds up in some ways to a relationship to Primal Derma, which is a skincare company, which is young, but is about reclaiming our ancient past in our relationship to land, the health of the land, the health of animals, and the health of us. And so Primal Derma is a skincare product made out of grass-fed beef tallow, which is an unusual substance, but it's the rendered fat from, from cows, although it could be from other ungulates. As well. So um, the tallow that would be in, you know, mainstream brands, that would not be from grass-fed cows. The vast majority of tallow that is generated is from industrially produced beef, and so it's pretty. It's definitely not grass-fed. It's pretty toxic, but still slippery because, like, it just comes. So it's used in all sorts of industrial things. It's used for. You know, greasing drills and oil wells, you know, effluvia uh, from that process. Sometimes using lipstick. It's, I mean, it's broken down and used in lots of different things. But the amount of grass-fed beef, as opposed to industrially produced beef in the country, is pretty small. So a lot of it gets pitched because there's not a big market for it. Uh, plenty of it does get saved, and because um, some people want to use it for some things. But not a lot of it does, and so that's part of the work of of my little venture is to help support these farmers that are trying to do the right thing by having this relationship with the health of the land and the health of the cows. Because when cows are eating grass, which is what they're ancestrally designed to do on pasture that uh, suits them in terms of space, they help the land recover. There's more carbon capture, the grass grows deeper, the soil is more aerated, and everything about it is sort of better. And so this is the way that cows, of course, are a relatively recent invention, but cow-like creatures, things like oryx and other grazing animals have been around forever. And there's pretty good evidence that humans have been using tallow on their skin for at least 17,000 years, probably more, like 20, but you know, called me a liar for 3,000 years. So tell our listeners what tallow is for you. What, what is the process of collecting tallow? So there's two processes that I use. One is I get big chunks of uh, fat that have been pulled off of animals post-slaughter, and I get that at home, and I render it down, which looks basically like cooking it really slow in water for a long time till all the material of the flesh breaks down, strain it a whole bunch, refrigerate it, and then just sort of like your gravy at home where the fat rises to the top and the liquid goes to the bottom, separate that, get rid of the water, melt it again, strain it again, and then sort of re-refrigerate re it and then sort of keep on dry till it's dry. You don't want any water in tallow. And then once you have the, the solid brick of tallow, 
you can melt it into whatever ratios you need for the, the combination I make and then to mix it with moringa oil to soften it. It's pretty stiff and then essential oils to scent it. And then that's it. Right. So you have, um, this started because you have relationships with friends who are, um, beef farmers. farmers. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, when I first found out about tallow even being, I knew tallow existed as a skincare thing, but hadn't really thought too much about it, just being interested in ancestral health issues, I thought, oh, right. But then I read an article in a sort of obscure magazine that told the story about tallow in the Mexican heritage, and it had a lot of chemistry in it, which sort of appealed to me because I'm pretty nerdy, and I thought, oh, this sounds sort of fun, and I... I didn't know about the history of it in Mexico, but I sort of knew about it more broadly. And at the end of the article, there was a recipe, and I thought, this sounds like I could do it. So I talked to a friend of mine who was a farmer down at the Union Square Farmer's Market who I'd bought beef from for years, and he said, you're really in luck. I happen to have some because mostly I throw it away or burn it. But if you want 10 pounds or 100 pounds, I'll sell you it for the same price. So it's just waste from his property. Largely it's waste because there's a deep fat phobia in the culture. Mm -hmm. And for him, if he can't sell it due to some legal restrictions in New York State slaughtering and other states too, since he's doing small hold uh, slaughtering, all of it needs to be accounted for to, to sell it. Uh, so this, he just happened to be lucky and sort of had accounted for it, and so he could sell it. So, mm-hmm. oh, I see. So, um, are you the first person that's approached him for his? Tallow? I was the first person who approached him for his tallow. He sort of just had it sometimes because every once in a while, you know, a friend of his would say, "Do you have some tallow?" Because some people use it for making pie crusts or any number of things. But I just happened to catch him literally on the day where he just had done a slaughter and had it still. Right, so is tallow the word for like the animal fat or is tallow the word for the rendered product? You can use it for either. Um, it, more properly, the rendered stuff is tallow, but you could say, I mean, it will be tallow when it's on their body, but it's still fat when it's on their body. All right, so you take the fat, you're not taking bones or? No, no bones. Um, you do need to, before you start, you need to sort of trim off like little flecks of muscle or whatever mm-hmm. because it was part of the animal mm-hmm. and then clean it. Yeah. Okay. So this was just sort of like, um, like the way that maybe I tried a new soup recipe. You tried a making tallow recipe. That's exactly right. I didn't really like it though. I didn't, I, I liked the idea of it, but it, the recipe that was in the article was sort of just didn't come out the way that I thought a skin product should. So I, I had a hundred pounds of tallow to play with. What does a hundred pounds look like in a New York city kitchen? Like, I mean, it looks like, I mean, it's spread your arms really wide uh-huh. and then sort of make that a square. Okay, so this was like sitting on your counter. You had to put it in your fridge. I had well, I had a really big freezer. Uh-huh. I had a second freezer anyway, just because I was a. I always bought meat in big mm-hmm. amounts, so I'm lucky enough to be one of those homeowners in New York that have a big house. I have a brownstone up in Harlem, so getting 100 pounds was a total schlep to carry in the subway. But I did it, and then you know I was sort of doing five pounds at a time to sort of see what how I could play with it. And I gave a bunch away, and I sold a bunch in my experiments, and people just said it works really, really well for whatever for many people's skin issues, questions, wonders. They're like, this just works. And almost every person that I gave it to or sold it to said, you should turn this into a business. 
And I've been a full-time weirdo my whole life and sort of have followed a, um, a winding path of something that looks like a, a career. And I'd never done anything that looks like physical products. And so it didn't have a whole lot of body of knowledge on that. But I thought, I don't know, maybe this is the thing to try it on. Were you working at the Food Network while all this was going down? No, it wasn't. I'd been gone for some time there, but this was probably more post the film mm-hmm. and... Yeah. And um, how long has it been that the company's been in existence? Two years. So for two years, is this your only job or you have side hustles too? I have many uh, plates on which I spin. What are those other plates? I'm a landlord. I'm an author. I help teach a personal professional development course sometimes, which is not of my own devising. I have a creativity consultancy, which is a, a joy in my life and I'm also a part-time body worker so I do a bunch of different stuff. What is a body worker? Uh, it's things that look like massage but aren't really massage uh, but okay. help to move things in people's bodies. So. And what is a creative, consult- creative consultant? Is that what you said? I have a creativity consultancy. So since 2009 I've been sitting in Union Square pretty regularly with two folding chairs and a table and a sign that says creative approaches to what you've been thinking about and then a smaller sign that says pay what you like or take what you need with a little jar of money there. And I've spoken with over 4,000 people out there, helping them look at whatever is going on in their lives, big or small, personal or professional, weird or totally mundane. And I try not to ever give advice, but help people look at whatever is going on in their lives in a more creative way to help them cultivate a new relationship with that. For how long do you speak to each person? It could be any amount of time. It could be five minutes. It could be five hours. And I've done both. Isn't this out of a Peanuts comic strip? Well, I mean, I suppose there is a little bit like the doctor is in, um, but that's definitely five cents, and they're (laughs) definitely trying to move you out the door. But there is, you know, uh, I suppose in one way, this might be a kin to to that idea, though I just put myself out there and see what, what happens. But I definitely don't make any claim that I can fix you, and I'm not interested in giving advice, which doctors often are, and Lucy certainly was. Right. So um, how do people know that you're there? They're just in I just, they just will show up. I mean, I'll, I'm just there on the south end of Union Square, sort of from May to October, depending on the weather, um, one day a week. And you need a permit for that table? You don't, actually. Uh, there were some battles during the uh, Bloomberg years to sort of deal with that. But now if you have anything that looks like entertainment on your board, on your table, you can be counted as uh, recreation and you're oh. fine. Okay. So um, you have a lot of plates spinning. Yeah. How do you um, see moving the brand forward? Well, I see them moving the brand forward by continuing to find audiences who might be interested in sharing, understanding the story and bringing it in. And I'm not trying to grow the company into some sort of like radical, huge, you know, you know, Burt's Bees, which is a beautiful company in lots of ways, took nearly 30 years to turn it into what they turned into and never started off with the intention of we're going to become a multinational company. That's not my goal at all. Um, Roxanne Quimby, who started Burt's Bees, her intention at the beginning was, I want to share these great ingredients in the story of the place that I come from. So where this will end up, I couldn't really say, but it, there's a famous economics book by E.F. Schumacher called Small is Beautiful. And I'd like for this to be small uh, for now, because I think small is sustainable. 
and it allows me to be in close contact with the con- with the the product and the farmers and the manufacturing. Uh, I would love for it to be big enough that I might be able to sustain those who support me, uh, my home and my family, but also the the farmers and the animals and the land. To be able to be in that sort of a circuit would be pretty grand. Right. So, um, you know, you're certainly a beauty industry outsider. Um, What's been the biggest surprise um, since starting this business about our industry? I think what's really been a surprise for me is just how slow it is that it really, I didn't think that it was going to go fast. I just thought it would go slower because I do know that the subject matter from which I'm sort of philosophically orienting the skincare product around tallow is unusual and it's story worthy just all alone because a lot of people say, what's tallow? Why would I put beef fat on my skin? Right. Huh. Interest. Like, even if they think that's gross, which some people do, they, no one says that's not interesting. Right, like when you and I first spoke, I was really surprised by myself, like yeah. in my reaction to it. Like one, that like, well, of course, like what would people have been doing 100 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, we didn't have those chemical substitutes. So, of course, we've, we've our ancestors have been doing this. Um, of course, it makes sense. Of course, you know, hundreds of other beauty companies are using maybe lesser quality tallow, but certainly they're infused in many of the products that I've been using my whole life and probably didn't have an awareness around. Um, But there's something about the way you present it and your backstory to how it evolved into an actual product that paints a different picture around it. I don't know. It doesn't feel like an ingredient of industrialized beauty, right? Right. It's not. It's the opposite of it. It's the opposite of that. Um, But that's what I know, right? I know chemical companies and I know manufacturers and labs. Um, I don't know this, right? right? So it feels it feels odd, even though it's not odd, which is like my surprising reaction to it. Yeah. So in that regard, there's a sense of you know, when journalists or magazines have written back saying, wow, interesting story, we'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. Just hearing that a lot over the last two years and sort of wondering like, wow, I... You sort of, not in a self-centered way, but like, I sort of thought that if you, people write back to say this is an interesting story, that they say, we'll do something on it. Right. It would be like me saying, sitting with you and being like, this is so interesting. This is so odd. I'm not going to have you on the podcast. Exactly, that's exactly <laughs> right. And that's happened a lot. And so in that regard, I've just been surprised that when people write back, they write back to say, so interesting. We're not doing it. Right. They're not even ignoring you. They're actually acknowledging, like, this is pretty fascinating. So yeah. I have a hunch if you want to hear it. I would love to hear it. I'm, I'm welcome to all help. Okay, so um, I think that in the beauty industry, there is a a true discomfort with something that is so not vegan, Mm. right? So like vegan, the the Leaping Bunny, that is um, a preferred place for many, many brands. We don't test on animals at all, just saying. But you are all animals. We are all animals, it's true. So there's like a very vocal community of vegan beauty customers and when those brands that they've been loyal to for years because they are vegan and they don't test on animals and blah 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 go off to China and all of a sudden start testing on animals it is like a major major deal Um, boycotting and their business can suffer so I think that the media the beauty media is so like hyper aware of that mindset that your, your approach feels uncomfortable right? even though it's I mean, I have, no, I have no data, but you know, is it eighty percent of beauty products already have animal animal ingredients in them? Probably. Um, 
So it's it's like we don't talk about what you're talking about in our yeah. industry. We only talk about the vegan side of the road. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just it's shocking people and making them uncomfortable. Yeah, I I feel in, in well I am not vegan in any way. I I have great uh, respect for their basically what I think vegans. What I don't I truly think you actually can be vegan, but that's a whole different uh, argument to talk to take on. But I do respect their deep heartbreak with the state of industrialized meat. And I really think that veganism is a protest against industrialized meat, which is fair enough. I There's nothing to defend about it. But when I have explained, I mean, I'm very proud of the ethical vegetarian dermatologist who used my product who said, wow, if you're going to use something with an animal product, this is sort of the one you want to use because it's really not trying to waste the animal. And people, everyone's trying to do right by this animal by every step of the way. Right. This is sort of like, if you must use an animal product, this is sort of the one that you'd want to do. So not to say that vegans, you, should, you must use this, this product and uh, tell this story on your skin, but... But it's good to hear that um, maybe in reaching out to all these different magazines going forward to say recognize that this isn't uh, part of the the vegan doctrinaire which you find so much. But there's a counter story which actually might be able to rope in some vegans to at least think about the philosophy. Yeah, and I'm also just wondering if you can find any data around how much of the th- products we're consuming already have tallow in them. Yeah. Right. That's gross tallow. Yeah. Let's call it gross tallow versus yeah. clean tallow. A lot of lipstick. Right. So like you know if you if you presented an editor or writer with, you know, the factoid that, you know, yes, these four major brands owned by these four major corporations are vegan and, in fact, do not use talent in their products. These 75 brands that represent, you know, mm. 80% of, you know, um, revenue in the category um, actually do use tallow, among other things, um, and for sure it's not clean. Mm. So, you know, I wonder if there's a sense of perspective that you need to create. That's really interesting. I haven't thought of that particular angle. Yeah, because um, I'm not aware of what, you know, I should say this, I'm in the business of being, trying to be aware of what I'm using, right? Like, I have a lot of clients who actually like super green and clean, and they have like a very regimented supply chain, and they like know everything, where everything's coming from, who harvested it, who blended it, right? Sure. So, but I'm confused by this, right? So I'm, I'm an honest marketer, right? Yes. Like, even though I'm an expert in many things, it's still a very confusing world. So for that editor who's not getting that close to brands, um, she needs an education. Um, and I think that her reaction is exactly my reaction. This is so weird. Why is it weird? It shouldn't be weird, but it feels really weird. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's the hill you have to overcome, especially because they've been inundated with, you know, PETA messages, leaving bunny messages. Yeah. You know, and you know, this is not a judgment on sure, sure. vegan. This is just the messages they're hearing in a very vocal community they're listening to. Yeah. I also wonder now that you're saying this that uh, I think another sort of complexity that I have wondered about as a, a young brand is is the story best told by me or is the best because when I email editor X at magazine Y they don't know who the hell I am they've right. never heard of Primal Derma but they may have heard of PR person you know Ellen let's just pick the name right. um, and they're more willing to because they have a cultivated relationship you know when I was an executive at Food Network I think I was an unusual executive that was willing to read every single pitch that came. It didn't mean that I could always respond quickly or say yes to all of them, obviously, but I was interested in reading every single one, but I don't know what it's like for beauty editors 
to receive unlimited pitches from unknown sources to be like, ah, I've never heard of Primal Dharma, but if they get a, an email or a call from Ellen who says, this is an interesting story, an interesting factoid, and you know, in some ways I think that other people can, can make the better case for you than you ever could, and I think that's been another struggle as a, a young brand is, I mean, I can be a, a, an articulate and interesting um, voice for Primal Derma, but in some ways, you know, your best friends will say more th things that, that are amazing about you than you ever would, could, or maybe even should. And so that's been a question in my own head. Like, do you pay the, I'm making up the number uh, of people who have, you know, you know, the $8,000 a month retainer for three months on the, you know, the rolling the knuckle bones of fate to see if maybe that turns into press and then maybe that turns into sales. Right. Well, I mean, as an agency that does do PR for brands sure. as part of one of our services, like, of course, you know, like, you know, someone on my team has a relationship, not just a relationship, a friendship, yeah. right? Um, and says, I have this thing. It's really weird. I need you to sit down and listen to it. And here's the angle. Yeah. Um, absolutely. That helps. Totally. It doesn't mean you can't do this on your own. Of course. Um, and I have many friends who run small brands who can't afford PR and they do it on their own. And people are responding to you, so they're getting your email, right? People well, no, are responding. I mean, some do. It's not like I mean, the, re the response rate is low, right? But so still, you the fact back. that anybody's responding back is kind of a miracle. That's um, great. I'm doing okay. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, I think publicists have a job for a reason. It's of a course, career for a reason. It, so. it works, um, you know. But not everybody has the money for it, right? So you have to yeah. find find your other paths. Um, but I, you know, I think that there's certainly an opportunity here to tell the story. I do think that let's say you still had a, a job at Food Network. We call it Food Network or Food TV. Food Network. Food Network. Um, let's say you were doing this as your side hustle and you still had your job. Sure. Then it's like I'm, you know, I'm Matthew from Food Network. I have a story about, you know. Well, yes, right? of course. So then for them, yes. it's like a very, oh, very, right. very clear story, right? Yeah. You know, food industry executive sees waste in the industry. Totally. You know, he eats the meat. Here's the extra stuff. So for them, right. it's packaged up in a really clean way. Yeah, I have to make that pitch as a former Food Network executive. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, obviously, the work you're doing for skincare is heavily impacted by your history in the yes, food industry. Um, so maybe you have to draw that connection really strongly. That you're not just a, a guy who hangs out, you know, and carrying beef fat on the subway. <laughs> it's, you know, it's your brownstone, yeah. but you're actually a food industry executive. Yeah. Um, advocate, right, for, for you yeah. know, poverty means people don't have food, right? Indeed, yeah. A lot of things about food. So um, if you draw those connections, I, I think that the story mm. can continue on. And maybe yeah, maybe you are just um, not saying the things they need to hear in that moment. Yeah, you know? it may not be, but that's I've, I'm thankful for that, uh, that language on how to better advocate for the story. Thanks, podcast. Yeah, anytime. Yeah. We're like, wait, I should have put my sign on the table. <laughs> you really should have. Yeah. <laughs> but I gave you advice, which you don't give to that's, your, your customers. That's fair it. enough. But uh, I'm, I'm open to advice. I really am. I've had a lot of uh, really fine women who've given me a tremendous amount of guidance um, to make this whole thing happen. Yeah, this is a very, um, I think it's a very generous industry. I, if you started to make a short list of executives that you find fascinating mm. and reach out to them, I bet you know half would respond and yeah. make time for you. Um, so, you know, I, I would encourage you to continue to network in the industry more oh, well, yeah. beyond just pitching yourself to publicists, but, you know, people who have built brands, yeah. maybe whose um, personal philosophies, you know, you connect with, um, 
and I think you'll probably find incredible um, advocates and advisors that way. Thanks. I'm, I just invested a chunk of money to go to IBE in August, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, scary to lay down that much money at once, but it's sort of the thing you need to do to feed that which might feed you. Right. I think that being an entrepreneur in an industry means that you have to be a risk taker. Yeah. Um, and um, you have to spend the money now to make it later. Yeah, for sure. Which I would think is in any sort of industry where you have um, you know, distribution and product on the shelf sitting in the warehouse. But certainly here. Um, and it's slow. I have it's clients slow. who've been um, doing this for 20 years, and they're not like huge companies. Maybe it's yeah. like easier now, you know, maybe the money rolls in a little easier, but with that, well, then there's more things to spend on, right? right. So it's not this sort of like I flick a switch and all of a sudden I'm rolling in dough and For my life sure. is easy. Yeah. Um, but if it's something you believe in and you feel really passionate about it, you can probably have a lot of fun, meet a lot of incredible people and hopefully make back plenty of money for your investment. No, that would be a real joy if such a thing happens. You know, in the meanwhile, I'm really delighted to try to make good choices. You know, we have, you know, it took a long time for us to figure out how to make recyclable labels so that, you know, our everything about our product is recyclable. Mm-hmm. Um, and those vinyl labels were really annoying to me. And I just like, how can I figure this out? And it took a while and it took a whole um, bunch of infusion of cash, which I didn't really have, but you sort of played credit card bingo <laughs> and said, okay, I'm going to make this happen so I can tell this story because it fits into the whole ethos of what I want to do. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. This is awesome. Uh, the fact that you call it wisdom at all is high praise. I'll see if I can keep that up. Thank you so much, Jody. I'm really grateful. For our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.